Priorities for the Quad. The way to actually shape India's calculations on this are not going to be by condemning India in turn about not condemning Russia, but working with it to move it to a more kind of a conducive position. Japan's security and foreign policy. This multi-layered process of creating more deterrence so that Japan can create a political space to move towards a peaceful coexistence with China over the next 10, 20 and 30 years. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. With the Quad leaders set to meet in Tokyo next Tuesday, this episode explores the security and foreign policies of Australia's Quad partners, India and Japan. First up, Justin Bassey speaks to India expert, Dr. Tanvi Madan. Their conversation explores India's relationship with China and the China-Russia partnership, and highlights opportunities for the Quad to ensure stability and security in the region. Tanvi, it's great to have you back on the Aspie podcast. I hope you're enjoying Canberra, even though it's very, very chilly. With the Quad leaders meeting next week, let's start with the balancing act for not just India, but all of our Quad partners in relation to Russia and China. Over the last couple of weeks, you've written and spoken about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine had at first put pressure on India's growing security and economic partnerships with America and Europe. We immediately saw India decide to engage with Quad and Western partners without openly condemning Moscow. This was seen in Australia during the Foreign Minister's Quad just before the invasion, where External Affairs Minister Jaishankar pointedly focused public discussion on the Indo-Pacific. You've argued that the framing of the war in Ukraine as Russia versus the West could unintentionally widen differences between India and its Western partners, including the Quad. So with the Quad Leaders Summit next week, do you think Australia, the US and Japan should agree ahead of the meeting that they will show a level of understanding about India's different history with Russia on the basis that the long-term priority must remain the challenges posed by China? Justin, I think they already have shown more understanding. And I think if you actually consider how the governments themselves, the Biden administration, the Kishida government and the Morrison government here, I think they've actually handled these differences and divergences quite well. None of the countries obviously are are happy about India's position, perhaps also disappointed by it and perhaps even upset about it. But I think there has been a recognition that there are other strategic imperatives Uh, that are important, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, but also that the way to actually shape India's calculations on this are not going to be by condemning India in turn about not condemning Russia, but working with it to move it to a more kind of conducive position that will result in kind of some convergence, if not entire agreement. So I, I think in some ways you've already seen the fact that a quad Leaders Summit is taking place, that India has agreed to to go for it, and even agreed in March 2022 to that virtual summit that the leaders did, is partly, I think, a reflection of the fact that the three other countries have shown some understanding of India's position, and also said that they will not essentially let Russia veto the Quad or their relationships with India, because that would have been the end result, that if, the, if, if there had been a sense of you know, just going after India on this in a public fashion, India then in turn would have said, we have no desire to cooperate because 
We have different interests uh, at play. But I will kind of go to that point of not framing this as Russia versus West. I think where there is convergence, and, and I think it's important to continue to focus on that, is that there is convergence on international order being important, on countries not violating another country's territorial integrity and sovereignty. And I think getting India to endorse that, and I think we'll probably see in a joint statement, the reflection of where the four countries do actually converge. I do think this is also an opportune moment to not, while not focus on the Russia-Ukraine crisis, there will be, I suspect, discussions about the implications for the Indo-Pacific, as well as the economic fallout that we've seen that is affecting countries, uh, not just in Europe, but around the region, including a country like India itself. As a follow-up to that, we saw in 2020 that the UK moved away from reliance on China's Huawei for its telecommunications network due to reliability issues as much as, if not more than, security issues. So do you think that Quad partners could focus on Russian reliability as a key to shifting India away from Russia over a period of time? Less focus on the history of Russia's malign activity and more on doubts about whether Moscow will be able to fulfil its defence supply obligations to India or indeed doubts on whether Russia would help India in any conflict with China given the Russia-China No Limits Partnership? Yes, I actually think the more India is concerned about Russian reliability, and it is independent of anything that other countries and other partners are telling it, because of two reasons. I think one, there are questions about Russian willingness, potentially, to supply India, particularly keep the arms supply going, because of this concern about Russia becoming more dependent on China as a result of this crisis, but also reflected before the Russian invasion, even in the joint statement that China and Russia signed in on February 4th. So the kind of Indian concern that they don't expect necessarily that Russia would support India in an India-China crisis. And a reminder that that border crisis is still ongoing. It hasn't that started in 2020. It didn't end then. It's ongoing. And there is concern in India that that could escalate at any moment. They don't expect Russia's support, but India, I think, does not want Russia to go to China's side, which partly explains its caution about condemning Russia by name. Nonetheless, this does raise in Indian minds both a concern about being over-dependent on Russia for military supplies and a question of what a Russia more beholden to China will do if China makes asks of it that are against Indian interests, including potentially a more kind of pro-China position and even stalling military supplies to India in the event of a crisis. So I think there are questions already in India about doubts about Russian willingness to supply or take India's side. But I think there's also kind of now doubts about Russia's ability to supply India because the kind of arms industry in Russia is so focused and on kind of the supplying Russia itself. Also, a lot of the Russian or Soviet equipment that India has actually doesn't just have Russian components, but Ukrainian components as well, including its tanks and helicopters. And I think the question for India will also be is some of the upcoming projects or platforms that it was acquiring, what are export controls and sanctions going to do to Russia's ability to be capable uh, to supply India in these domains and Indian ability to pay for them? You know, they have a rupee-ruble mechanism, but that's had problems in the past. And India will be wary of violating sanctions, particularly any companies that are actually have exposure to the West. So I think India is already recognizing this. I don't think it hurts to, to kind of not just, I think it's not just about facilitating Indian doubt. 
it's about uh, providing alternatives and saying, okay, if, if Russia is not going to be able to supply, are there things that we can do to be helpful either strategically or in, in kind of arms uh, acquisition? One thing I will add just at the end is I think there has some countries have kind of gone into the a little bit of a try not triumphalism but maybe actually saying that oh look we're feeding doubt publicly we'll say we're feeding doubt in India about Russia China relations or doubt as a supplier I actually think that will be counterproductive I think it's good when Indians themselves ask themselves these questions and it's good to have these discussions in private but not actually go out in public and say you know this is why we're doing these things because I think it will be counterproductive no, I agree. And your point about sanctions, I think, is very important. Uh, it would be interesting to watch how long sanctions are imposed for, even after the war is finished, no matter what the outcome mm-hmm. is. A central theme in your excellent book, Fateful Triangle, and I encourage everyone to uh, to get a copy, is the historical importance of China in shaping ties between the US and India. In many respects, the India-Australia partnership has become closer also in part due to alignment of concerns with increasing aggression from China. The galvanising force of China's malicious activities has been strong. Instead of continuing to pick individual countries off one by one, countries like India and Australia, along with other Quad partners, have become closer. So I'm interested in your views on whether the opposite could occur. If India and China manage to resolve their border crisis and differences, Is there a risk that India could reduce its interest in the type of deep collaboration Australia and the US know we need to counter China's long-term objectives? Or are the foundations, including through the Quad and mutual interests in areas such as critical technologies, now set for India to continue playing a key role with partners in our strategic competition with China? First, Justin, thank you for the pitch for the book. It always helps and always goes down well with me. But also, I think that there are two reasons why I think this approach that India has taken towards deepening partnerships with the Quad as a group, but also very importantly with bilaterally with each of the Quad member states, why I think it will sustain. It might change in speed and kind of you know scale or in emphasis in terms of where India puts emphasis, but I think largely the direction is going to remain the same. And the two reasons I think this will happen is, for one, you can even not just resolve the boundary crisis, which is ongoing, you could even resolve the boundary dispute. And today, China and India have such a range of differences. India just has a fundamentally different view of the region. So they think China wants a unipolar Asia dominated by China, where Beijing gets to set the terms. That is not an Asia that India wants to see. India wants to see a multipolar Asia. It wants to see an Indo-Pacific where principles like freedom of navigation, like freedom of over flight and respecting, for example, territorial integrity and sovereignty, not making unilateral changes to the status quo, where these kind of principles hold, not to mention a variety of economic and technological principles as well. So I think, you know, you're going to see these kind of differences not just being about the border, it's about the regional vision, it's about India's concerns about the lack of reciprocity in economic ties. It's about India's concern about China's growing footprint and influence and how it uses that influence in India's neighborhood. Greater Chinese kind of military presence in the Indian Ocean region, not to mention the Indian view that China has actively tried to keep India down or away from a seat at the global high table at the UN Security Council or the nuclear suppliers group. So I think there's just a range of differences now that really goes beyond the boundary, which was the initial kind of source of difference. I think the second reason is 
I think this boundary dispute, this boundary crisis that has gone on now for the last two years has significantly changed. It's been an inflection point in India's view of China. I think it's done a few different things, one of which is for India, China has violated boundary agreements that the two countries had signed over a 25-year period. And what those agreements had done in India's mind is actually opened the door. It had laid the basis for a broader relationship, including economic ties with China, including working together in multilateral organizations. But it also meant that that peace and stability had provided that ballast. I think the fact that India now sees these agreements as having been violated, the question's always going to be in India's mind. So today we'll stabilize the boundary. But can we really trust that China will stick to its commitment in the future? Can it really, can we really trust that it's going to stick to these agreements? And so if you think you can't trust China to do that, that means you're going to have forward deployments on the border. That means you are going to continue to build up infrastructure and your capability. That means you're going to continue to have these restrictions on China investing in your critical infrastructure, including in telecom and other spaces. And it means you're going to continue to build these relationships with like-minded partners because you cannot take for granted or that China will respect the commitments it has made. So I don't expect, I think you might see change in pace, as I said, maybe emphasis, but I think it will continue to build these ties as long as that enthusiasm to build these relationships is reciprocated in the other countries. The point about trust is an excellent one. Trust is very, very difficult to earn, but can easily be broken. I think your point about trust there is a key reason why the India-Australia relationship will continue to be strong and the Quad partnership will continue to be so vital for all the countries involved. Beyond the India-China bilateral relationship and beyond the Quad, let's move to India's immediate neighbourhood. India is now facing an extremely challenging neighbourhood, economic crisis in Sri Lanka, leadership change in Pakistan, domestic crisis in Myanmar, but also China's territorial inroads into Nepal and Bhutan. Does Delhi's role as a regional leader mean it can should leverage China's border ambitions with other neighbours, such as Bhutan? to develop a broader regional response to Chinese aggression rather than making it solely a bilateral issue? So I think the one thing that India has to be careful to do is not look at its neighbors through just a China prism. And I think that's a question and an issue for all kind of the like-minded partners, which is whether it's in Southeast Asia, whether it's in the Pacific, whether it's India and its South Asian neighbors, is these countries want to be seen in their own right with relationships develop in their own right. Now, there's little doubt that India's posture towards these countries, in fact, the choices it's willing or the alternatives it's willing to offer or the resources is partly shaped by the fact that it's been concerned about China's growing influence in these countries, influence that has often been deployed to indeed constrain India's interests or those of the US or other like-minded partners. So I think there is scope for you know working together with other countries. But I think it will be important for India itself, but other countries who India wants to work with in this region to not just focus on China, to actually build these broader ties and kind of the relationship. Because for these countries, they are not going to see China the same way. The way I think about it in South Asia, there are really three different views on China. You have an India that sees China as a rival. You have a Pakistan that sees China as a partner, if not almost ally. And you see these other South Asian countries, absent Bhutan, which has not diplomatically established ties with China, but the rest of the South Asian countries, Maldives, Sri Lanka, Nepal, 
Bangladesh who are really like the new non-aligned. You know, they they will want uh, to maintain relations with both India and China, with both the U.S. and China, with with other like-minded like Australia and Japan, and even play one off against the other. For them, they will try to kind of use this competition to indeed try to create space for themselves diplomatically and even politically in their own kind of domains. They are not necessarily going to buy into aggressiveness in the same way. They won't see it the same way. They'll say this is an India-China issue or somebody else's. I think Bhutan is different because it is as close to having an ally that India gets. And there, India actually has security commitments and its own parochial interests. And I think they will be concerned, but there might even be voices in Bhutan who say, could we in fact reach a deal with China if we struck our own deal, something China encourages if we actually distance ourselves from India. But they have not done so thus far. India and Bhutan work very closely. So I think, you know, trying to use kind of Chinese aggression, I think it just will not go down well in some countries and not be effective. But I do think it shapes the environment which both India is thinking about these issues and other like-minded countries, Australia, Japan, the US, France, the UK will. And the thing to do is focus on developing ties with these countries independently uh, when there's possible to actually highlight ways that Chinese involvement in their own societies and governments and economies can be harmful. We are seeing that in Sri Lanka now, where China didn't create the problem, but it did things to exacerbate it, and it's not doing very much to help resolve it. So I think highlighting these kind of things, but again, that not being the primary driver of how to deal with these countries in the region, or for that matter, with countries as we think about smaller countries in the Indo-Pacific more broadly. With the Quad next week, do you think then the Quad leaders should put these topics on the formal agenda? I do think, you know, you're going to see, as you know, Justin, regional developments do come up. And that's actually the utility of the Quad meetings if they're regularly held, that you can touch base on concerns in the region. And I suspect on the plate will be the situation in Sri Lanka, which has ramifications, and not just for Sri Lanka and for kind of the Indian Ocean region or for India, but I think is actually reflective of a problem we might see in a potentially play out in other countries that we should be watching. And I suspect maybe the Solomon Islands will also come up because, again, this reflects broader concerns that the four countries have about uh, not just kind of these smaller states and needing to kind of think about them independently, but also kind of the role China is playing in shaping their choices and, frankly, sometimes too in an adversarial way and asking them to choose, but just being more subtle about it. And us being able to offer these countries choices, but also using kind of these examples with other states and say, you know, you talk about us trying to destabilize. We're not. We're actually trying. We're not trying to force choice. We're trying to enable choice. We're trying to offer choice. You might actually want to look at some of your engagements with China because, and this has to be subtle, look what it's helped do in Sri Lanka. And at the end of the day, look who is going to be the first responder. It's not China. It's either India alone or in conjunction with its partners, uh, including the Quad countries. It's interesting you mentioned the China Solomon Islands security agreement. Do you think that's something that the other Quad partners, and particularly India and Japan, would raise with Australia in the context not only of Australia's views, but to also say, well, welcome to the club of countries who have a particular interest in territorial sovereignty and and security? I do think this is a particularly, might be a fruitful place to, for in, Australia and India at least to have a discussion about, because I think more so than the other partners, Quad partners, they actually, I think Australia and India have neighborhoods with countries where they have traditionally been used to being the dominant actor, and now it's a more competitive space. 
how to deal with the situation, share experiences, both do's and don'ts, how not to kind of exacerbate the problem, how to have early warning signs, how to approach these countries, how to offer choices. So I do think there is space to actually have a discussion on these issues, given that a country like India, for example, has been dealing with this for several years and might actually have some thoughts to offer Australia and learn more about and see are there ways for the Quad or for the other countries to actually be helpful. Because uh, as I'm sure Australia has historical baggage with the Pacific Island states, India has historical baggage with South Asian states, or at least they have it with India. And sometimes it actually might be more fruitful for other countries to engage in these regions in ways that they might think they're kind of traditionally dominant actor, they might not want to engage in. Danvi, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could talk for a lot longer, but I encourage all the listeners to go out and get Fateful Triangle. Another plug for what is an excellent book. But Danvi, I really appreciate your time. Always welcome on the Aspie podcast. I look forward to reading many more articles, both leading into the quad afterwards and throughout the year. Thank you so much, Justin. I'm particularly excited to do this in person in Canberra, but also that this is your first inaugural or your inaugural podcast. And I'm delighted and honoured that I get to be uh, the first guest that you have. Likewise. Shifting focus to Japan, Dr. Malcolm Davis speaks to Dr. Stephen Nagy about Japan's foreign and security policy. They discuss Japan's relationship with China, the importance of multilateralism, and the potential for increased technology cooperation. Stephen, welcome to ASPE. We're talking today about Japanese security and foreign policy. Japan has had to balance its relationship with China through both a desire for cautious engagement via trade and diplomacy against a need for hedging against a clearly emerging military and security challenge by China. In particular, the issue of the South China Sea, Taiwan and the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea are likely flashpoints that could lead to future military conflict. Japan's approach is also complicated because it must consider the needs of allies and partners, most notably the United States, but also Australia. How likely is the current Japanese government of Prime Minister Kishida Fumio to successfully manage this complex balance of engagement and deterrence in this relationship to ensure stable relations or are relations between Tokyo and Beijing destined to deteriorate? First, thanks for having me, Malcolm, and it's great to be here at the Australia Strategic Policy Institute. So I think when we look at Japan-China relations, we look at it through the lens of engagement, deterrence, and resilience. And rather than focusing on this particular Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida, I think we should look at it as a broader consensus within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party that China is going to be Japan's neighbor for the next 500 years and 1,000 years. They got to coexist with China. The question is, how do they coexist with China? And that's what I use those three terms. Engagement, through trade and through multilateralism. Resilience, by building resilience into the relationship, such as supply chains and technology streams. And lastly, deterrence. What are the effective mechanisms to deter against Chinese assertive behavior across the Senkaku Islands or across the Taiwan Straits? or the South China Sea. And here, the U.S.-Japan alliance remains the cornerstone of that relationship. But emerging partnerships, such as the reciprocal access agreement between Australia and Japan, and strategic partnerships that are really throughout the region are this multi-layered process of creating more deterrence so that Japan can create a political space to move towards a peaceful coexistence with China over the next 10, 20, and 30 years. Okay, so how do you think Japan's policy in relation to the status of Taiwan is changing. Since those uh, remarks were made 
by, for example, Japan's Deputy Prime Minister Taro Aso, that Japan needed to defend Taiwan alongside the US if Taiwan was invaded. Do you think that Japan's relationship with Taiwan is changing? Is Japan adjusting its defence policy to embrace a willingness to intervene in support of a Taiwan Straits crisis? And what are the implications for the US-Japan Mutual Security Treaty? So Japan has been much more explicit about its position vis-a-vis Taiwan over the past two years. I think good examples are the tete-a-tete between Prime Minister Suga and Biden on his first visit to Washington back in March 2020, where they stressed peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. This message was reiterated by the G7, by NATO, and Japan continues to reinforce this message that Japan prioritizes the status quo. This means that they won't accept a unilateral statement of independence by the Taiwanese, but at the same time, they're not going to support Beijing forcefully reunifying with Taiwan. The reason is quite simple. The sea lanes of communication that fuel Japan's economic growth, uh, most of its imports and exports come through the South China Sea, in and around Taiwan, through the East China Sea into Japan. It's energy resources as well. Japan has a clear security interest in ensuring that Taiwan and the cross-strait relations remain stable, that the status quo remains intact. And I think the messaging by this prime minister, the former prime minister and future prime ministers will continue to be the same in terms of articulating Japan's, I think, red lines in terms of how it views the future of Taiwan. Obviously, we're all focused on what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. What are the implications, do you think, for China in terms of the lessons learned from Ukraine? Well, I think China, as well as Russia, didn't expect the unified response by the United States under President Biden, the EU, as well as critical partners such as Japan in terms of financial sanctions against Russia. Cutting off the central bank in Russia has been unexpected by China and Russia. I think that China is looking at these financial tools as really pressure points that could affect China in any future conflict. These would obviously be the first tools in any low-level conflict with China if they did pursue a forced reunification with Taiwan or became more aggressive across the East China Sea or the South China Sea. In many ways, I think China is looking at these tools as a preview of what they should expect in any kind of conflict moving forward. On that said, I think Tokyo in particular, where I'm viewing this from, is watching how China builds resilience into its own economy tries to prevent the same kind of financial tools being used against China in some kind of future friction moving forward. Mm. Well, now let's broaden the focus out to the region in general. This establishment of AUKUS in 2021 and the strengthening of the Quad are two really important multilateral security developments in recent years. So how can these multilateral arrangements be developed further to better enhance regional deterrence against China? and to strengthen a free and open Indo-Pacific, particularly from the perspective of Tokyo. And do you think that there's a case for Japan to seek membership of AUKUS, in other words, turn it into a JAUKUS-type organisation? How would Japan focus on areas such as hypersonic strike and critical and emerging technologies? So the Quad and AUKUS are different species in terms of minilateral relationships, and I think we should focus on the Quad separately from AUKUS. So in terms of the Quad, we've already seen it migrate away from a primary security-focused organization to try and get stakeholder buy-in from the region. And that has meant focusing on infrastructure and connectivity, focusing on selective technology cooperation and creating working groups to focus on specific technology cooperation. We've seen expansion of activities such as the support for manufacturing of vaccines in India and the distribution to emerging countries. 
the Quad is likely going to continue to evolve in that direction as long as Japan sees stakeholder buying as the key and critical factor to the Quad getting buy-in from the region at large. The Quad can be a problem solver, it can be an institution builder, and it can provide a lot of public goods to the region that I think can win friends and influence countries. AUKUS, on the other hand, I think is a little bit different. Of course, we have the nuclear submarine deal that Australia is part of. I see this as somewhat problematic in terms of Japan's position moving forward. I see resistance in terms of the nuclear submarine aspect, in particular after the comments of some prominent Chinese scholars talking about Australia now being the target of Chinese nuclear missiles after joining the Quad. But in terms of AI, quantum computing, cybersecurity, and hypersonic missile cooperation, here I think Japan has a lot to offer. Japan shares the view that these are the critical technologies that are going to shape the evolution of the Indo-Pacific, how we govern countries, how we think about privacy, the role of the state in the digital economy, and the critical technologies that are going to shape future economies, AI and quantum computing in particular. Here, Japan, but not only Japan, I think other countries, whether it's Germany and Canada, can really bolt into the AUKUS agreement. So rather than JAUKUS, I see AUKUS actually expanding in the area of these critical technologies that are going to shape the Indo-Pacific region's stability, its governance, and how we think about the role of government in the region. Well, let's build on that to talk about new operational domains such as space and cyber and the electromagnetic spectrum. Increasingly, you're seeing Western defence powers developing new organisational structures like such as space forces and cyber commands. Japan is following suit. It's established a second space operations squadron to protect satellites against counter-space threats. It's also collaborating closely with the United States on cyber security and established a cyber defence command. So how do you think in the future these new operational domains, space, cyber and the electromagnetic spectrum are going to prioritise and shape Japanese defence thinking and capability development. So we've already seen Japan shift its position on these domains. And if we look at the national defence budget of just last year, they allocated money and funds in particular for the electromagnetic spectrum, over-the-horizon radar, satellite technology, and enhancing maritime domain awareness. Now, If you look at these at a macro level, what they're really doing is thinking about North Korea and its missile development and mapping and charting those missiles in the case of some kind of attack on Japan, but also thinking about China's positioning of submarines and its A2D2 system and getting a real solid understanding of these asymmetric capabilities that can really deal damage to the United States and capabilities of Japan and its other actors. And I think this is really critical for us to get a good sense of where Japan is thinking about the future of conflict, where they need to build more resilience, and where they need to work with the United States and like-minded countries to create a broader understanding and a deeper understanding of the security challenges that are emanating from North Korea and China, from underneath the water and in space, and to really push back against those asymmetric capabilities that China has developed really since the first Gulf War to push back against United States' advantages. Okay, one final question. Shinzo Abe has been talking about the possibility of hosting US nuclear forces. There's been potentially a debate occurring about should Japan review its nuclear status and its nuclear posture. 
Do you think that this debate will continue and do you think it would actually lead in the future to Japan either hosting US nuclear forces or ultimately developing their own nuclear weapons capabilities? So former Prime Minister Abe has been very explicit since stepping down as Prime Minister about many issues, Taiwan as we briefly spoke about, but bringing up the idea of at least discussing nuclear deterrence and hosting U.S. nuclear deterrence weapons is meant to start to bring the dialogue into the public sphere and into the policy sphere. These are really no-touch discussions in the Japanese context. The post-World War II identity is very much related to being the only country that has been bombed by nuclear weapons by the United States, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, their pacifist constitution. And I think that he understands that it's really critical to move forward and try to reshape the dialogue and at least bring up these ideas to gradually shift how citizens think about nuclear weapons as a deterrence, but also how policymakers and politicians can start to communicate to citizens why these are not so much an offensive weapon, but they can be used as a deterrence weapon to secure Japan and secure its society and again, help secure the free and open Indo-Pacific. Stephen, Grant, great to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Malcolm. Look forward to coming back. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Justin Bassey, Executive Director of ASPE, and Dr Tanvi Madan, Senior Fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program and Director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution, Dr Malcolm Davis, Senior ASPE Analyst, and Dr Stephen Nagy, Senior Associate Professor at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the International Christian University in Tokyo. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.